turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11, as we continue to make our way through this very unique Old Testament book. Before I read this morning, I want to read a portion of a letter that I recently came across, and I have permission to read it. And here it is. The times look awfully dark, and the clouds grow thicker. The foolishness of the nation seems to increase. If the Lord had not a remnant here, I would have very great apprehensions. But he still loves his children. Some are sighing and mourning before him. And I'm sure he hears their sighs and sees their tears. I trust that there is mercy in store for us at the bottom of all of this. But I expect a shaking time before that. Before we are humbled and taught to give him glory. The state of our nation, the state of churches, is in many ways deplorable. Those who should be praying are disputing and fighting among themselves. How many professing Christians are more concerned about the mistakes of the government or Americans than for their own sins? When will this all end? The whole system of my politics can be summed up in one sentence, he says. The Lord reigns. Your friend, John Newton, 1778. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, let's remind ourselves that We live, and think of us in this beautiful sanctuary, in the neighborhoods in which we live, we live in a time of tremendous creature comfort and security and health care. We live in ways that our forefathers and their forefathers and their forefathers could have never imagined the blessings and benefits that we have. Not in their wildest dreams could they imagine what we have in 21st century America. And I know not everybody's wealthy. Many people struggle. There's a real poverty, such thing as poverty. I I get that. But we're not living in the midst of a world war or a great depression or a civil war. Many of us look forward to the next soccer tournament, baseball tournament, Uh, go to the beach. Many of us will spend time at the beach this summer, and we'll sit there in the sand and sweat and watch our skin bubble, and this is called fun. We have pretty high expectations for what we're going to benefit from in this life as Americans in the 21st century. But... We still have our idols. 
They're a little different from ancient idols, as we have seen in the book of Judges. But boy, we still have them. This is an ancient book, but it is timeless. And before I read the passage, let's just review a little bit. Let's, let's remember that the book of Judges does not do this. It doesn't say, stop that. Don't do that anymore. You're a bad person. Don't do that. It shows us through stories of real people in history what idol worship looks like. So in a sense, yes, it does say stop that, but it shows us, hey, here's what happens when we worship idols. Here's what happens when people around us chase after idols. And maybe you've noticed even in our prayers and our reading earlier in the service and our songs that there's a, a, a sobriety, a sobriety about our service this morning because I'm about to read one of the most shocking passages in the Bible. Thank you, Joseph. Joseph leaves town, he's having fun, and I've got Jephthah. It's shocking. But you've heard me say this before probably. One of the things I love about the Bible, the Bible is not squeamish. We are. We tend to be very, but the Bible's not. Think of a sin. It's in the Bible. Any sin. But what does the Bible do with it? How does the Bible address it is the key. Not that it's there or not, but what does it do with it. So let's remember, there's nothing new under the sun. We are very blessed in many ways. And yet, this book shows us over and over what idolatry in action looks like. Judges 11, verses 30 through 35. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from the error to the neighborhood of Minneth, 20 cities, as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, His daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter! 
You have brought me very low, and I have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. There are people who would understandably say, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? And what in the world do we do with this? Well, we could see a lot of things here, but I want us to see two things, especially this morning. The power of words and the consequences of compromise. The power of words and the consequences of compromise. First, the power of words. You know, the first great battle in history, the first great conflict in history, in recorded history, is a conflict and a battle over words. It happens in the Garden of Eden. Is it going to be God's words or Satan's words? God's words or the words of the serpent? God has spoken. Let there be light. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let the earth bring forth creatures. Let us make man in our own image. And one of the great, great blessings that we have as human beings, unlike all other creatures... In all of God's creation is our ability to speak. And, by the way, to make and appreciate and to sing music. Makes us unique as human beings, made in God's image. We can speak. We can listen. We can hear. The first recorded words in human history coming from a human being are poetry. When the man sees the woman, when Adam sees Eve, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is a wonderful time of year for pastors and for many others because we get to do weddings. And at weddings, we have vows and we have pronouncements. I vow this and I vow that and this is my vow. And and, and one of the the great blessings as, as a pastor is to be able to say this. I now pronounce you man and wife. They weren't man and wife a minute ago. Now they are. The power of words. And of course, God, nothing's there, all of a sudden something is. God's words are powerful and creative. We are made in his image. And in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and says to Eve, did God really say that? Are you sure that you heard him right? Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, no, no. Eve says, no, he didn't say that. 
he, he said, we can eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we must not touch it. So she kind of adds something. He twists, she twists. And then the serpent, of course, says, you won't die. You'll be like God. It's a battle of words. And there has been a battle of words going on ever since. Jephthah uses words to make a foolish vow, a foolish bargain. I vow, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my door. And little does he know or expect. His words. Right on the surface of this passage, we see how destructive his words are. We live in a world, we've always lived in a world, but we especially live in a world of words now. Um, Radio, Sirius XM, TV, social media, whatever you're reading that's coming through your screen. Who are you listening to? What are you saying? What are you committed to? What kind of vows are you making? How are you using your words? Words are powerful. James chapter 3, of course, says the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We have, along with Jephthah, failed. Welcome to the, to the failure club. I'll be, I'll be the, the chairman. The power of words, but secondly, the consequences of compromise. Look, it's highly unlikely that you have made such a vow and sacrificed a child, or that matter, any other member of your family, But one of the prominent themes of the book of Judges over and over and over, the book of Judges shows us, hey, this is what halfway discipleship looks like. This is what halfway discipleship, uh, compromise. It's probably the best or the second best behind the Bible. The Bible's a best-selling, probably the best-selling Christian book of all time. It's at least in the top five. We don't read it as much anymore, but I know some of you have. It's Pilgrim's Progress. And in one of the the cities of destruction, I I love the characters in the the city of destruction, uh, Lord Turnabout, Mr. Smoothman, Mr. Facing Both Ways, and Mr. Two-Tongues. temptations for us to compromise with our words, with our culture, are everywhere. 
a little, a little gossip over here, a little truth over here, a little white lie over here, a little flirting over here, a little pornography over here. It's not going to hurt anybody. A little pornography, a little purity, a little stealing, a little cheating, and a little fairness. You see, Jephthah can't bring himself to believe that God is a God who keeps his promises and he is a God of grace. He doesn't completely trust. He's hedging his bets. He's Mr. Facing Both Ways. And he's looking at his culture and seeing how his culture acts. And I'll I'll sort of trust in God, but I see other peoples around me offering human sacrifices. I'll try that too. I'll play both sides. He can't bring himself to believe that God is a God of pure grace. There's no earning. There's no bargaining. There's no playing both sides. You can trust him. One commentator uh, summarizes Jephthah's predicament this way. Jephthah had clearly been deeply... Listen to this, how contemporary this is. Jephthah had clearly been deeply desensitized to violence by the pagan cultures around him. He had clearly been desensitized to the violence and cruelty that he saw in the pagan cultures around him. Not only that, but also by the pagan works righteousness. Maybe human sacrifice can buy off God. I'll try that. And the consequences are devastating. We all fail, don't we? But there's good news. Whatever you've done, however you've failed, whatever big, big mistake you have made, no matter how tragic, no matter how terrible, there's hope for you. There's hope for all of us. That failure is never final, ever. No matter how bad you think it is, it's not. That sin, whether it's in public or private, is never so bad that it can't be forgiven. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why his grace is free. 
We read it earlier in the service. Jephthah is in Hebrews 11. Jephthah. In this roll call of faithful people looking forward and looking to Jesus, Jephthah is there. And there's literally good news. I don't know why. We need to read this. We need to read this throughout the year and not just at Christmas. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jephthah and so many others. And in fact, if you look at the, the, the book of Judges, you read the whole book, you could summarize the whole book with failure is not final. But we have this sense like Jephthah, I've got to accomplish this. I've got to do this. I've got to win the battle. Jesus has won the battle. I don't have to bargain with God. I can trust him. I can trust him. I draw a great encouragement from one of the great, <laughs> one of the great failures of the New Testament. One of the great failures of the New Testament. Who, who, it, well, you know, p- pick a person, any person. Lots of failures in the Bible. Lots of failures in the New Testament. I love Peter. He's such a failure, and he's so impulsive. He's going to run down the road and jump out of the boat and climb the tree, whatever it takes. Think of it. Peter. He's called by Jesus Christ. He's discipled by Jesus Christ. He witnesses miracles. Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Jesus calms a storm and Peter sees it. Jesus miraculously fills his boat with fish. He sees Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory. He sees Jesus walk on water. I'm going to do that too. And of course he jumps out and and sinks. And Jesus washed Peter's feet. And Peter says... I don't know him. That's not Peter. In, in many, that's us. That's sort of all of us. When, when push comes to shove and difficulty and pain and sorrow and suffering and persecution comes, I don't know. Peter, following Jesus at a distance, denies that he knows Jesus three times to three different people. I don't know him. I'm not there. I'm not one of those. No, not me. I don't know the man. And we know the story. Failure is not final. After the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and says, Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. 
do you love me? Yes, I love you. And Peter, Peter the, the, the account in John says Peter was grieved because Jesus kept asking. Do you love me? And Jesus doesn't say, I'm so glad, <laughs> I'm so glad you love me and I want you to know that you're loved. No, he says, I've got a job for you. Feed my sheep. I've got a calling for you. Tend the flock. More important than your love for me is my love for you. Feed the flock. Tend the sheep. And Peter goes on to write one of the most wonderful books in the New Testament, 1 Peter, that directly addresses head-on the possibility of compromise with a pagan culture when you're persecuted and you're suffering. It's beautiful. First Peter, one of the great letters in the New Testament about all of these temptations that we've been talking about. And Peter, the mature Peter, says this in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. Though you, I hope this speaks to you directly today by the power of the Spirit. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And of course, we all know that Peter eventually gives his life for Christ. He's martyred. I like to ask this of you every once in a while. Do you see Jesus as useful or beautiful? Do you see Jesus as useful or beautiful? You see, Jephthah sees God as useful. Useful to win a battle. Peter comes to see God as beautiful. As wonderful, though he doesn't see him physically, he rejoices with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. Jesus sacrifices himself. Jesus sacrifices himself. And so now with this this great cloud of witnesses. We can lay aside the weight with all these witnesses that have come before us looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If you have your bulletin, hopefully you have your bulletin, turn in your bulletin to page six. Again, you want another summary good summary of the whole book is failure is not final. A good summary of this particular passage is you see where it says, Jesus, I come. Verse 2. 
we're going to sing this together in, in just a minute. Um, thank you, Mike, by the way. Thank you. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come. Out of earth's sorrows and into thy balm, out of life's storms and into thy calm. Out of distress into jubilant psalm, Jesus, I come to thee. We can trust him totally and fully. Jesus Christ has come to die in our place on the cross. We don't have to bargain. We don't have to sacrifice the people around us. We don't have to try to make bargains. We can trust him. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We once again see an account, a story in history of someone that that misuses words of someone who compromises with the culture. And Lord, we know that's us. <laughs> We're not pointing fingers. We know we are failures. We fall short. That's why Jesus came. We, we, we can't work our way to you. And we often do deny you when things get tough. And yet... We see in Hebrews 11, we see in 1 Peter that failure is not final. And it's not final because of the cross. The cross even looks like a failure. But it is the most wonderful, profound, life-changing, loving thing that ever happened on earth. The cross and the resurrection. And this is our hope. Lord, Even as we close with, with, with singing, Jesus, I come, I pray that you would help us by your word, by your spirit, to mean it. And Lord, we've all failed. And, and some of it, it, it is more public. Some of it's more private. Even as we reflect on the meaning of your word today, and as we sing in response to your word, we pray that we would trust Jesus, repent of our sins, run to him, knowing that what's most important is his love for us and not our failure and our sin. We want to see Jesus not as useful, but as beautiful. And we pray all these things in the name of him who came such a great, great distance for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.